bandwidth for this week's episode of Book Guys is brought to you by hollowbooks.com, where they create custom-made books where you can hide just about anything. You choose the book, they do the rest. This is the Book Guys Show. My name is Paul Alves, and this is our first of what will become a monthly ritual called Meet the Authors, where we spend an entire episode getting to know some interesting authors and their recent works. This episode, we've got five short chats, and these are usually going to range from around 5 to 15 minutes each, with the five different authors for you on today's show. Up first, author Bill Powers joins us. Fiction. 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 Uh, whose new book, The Torch is Past, a Harding family story, is on bookshelves, if not now, very soon. Very soon. How you doing, Bill? Great. How are you? Very good. I'm holding your book in my hand. Yes. I see a picture of a handsome fellow on the back. I'm assuming that's you. <laughs> the fellow on the back. That is me. Yes. <laughs> so The Torch is Past, a Harding family story. Tell us a bit about it, yeah. Bill. Okay, it's the second story in a trilogy of the Harding family, and the the torch is passed. My stories are really about they're they're thrillers, they're mystery thrillers, but they're really about and just regular people in a family who are trying to just exist, and bad things happen to them. They meet, they stumble across bad people doing bad things to them, and the question I put forward is, what are you willing to do? to protect the ones that you love and what are good people willing to do to protect themselves from bad people and the torch is passed the stories the, the protagonist family the harding family there's nicholas hardy who's the head of the family there's michael harding his brother they run a, a business in new jersey there's nicholas daughter andrea <coughs> andrea just graduated from college she just graduated from princeton this is where the story starts out. She's at her apartment in Princeton, New Jersey. She's been accepted at law school. She has the whole future ahead of her, the world's her oyster. She's just going to grab the world and do whatever she wants. And it's about 2 o'clock in the morning. She gets a call from two New Jersey state troopers saying they're downstairs at her door. She needs to come down. It's urgent. She goes downstairs, and they tell her that her father and her uncle have been shot and they're lying near death in the hospital and she has to come forward and see what's going on and Andrea has to step into the role of being the family protector and that's the sort of the the play of the torches passed the torches being passed from father to Andrea now Andrea has to be the protector of the family and take care of the family because someone is trying to wipe the Harding family off the face of the earth I, I love the, the the artwork on the cover and that, that kind of mm-hmm. you know sa- says yeah. it all you know they're they're low off looking at the sun sorry I guess a sunset or sundown who who does your yeah. who does your cover art Bill my cover I use, I work with Book Baby and uh, <clears throat> they they'll do whatever everything if you want and what I tend to do is I'm writing the book I think about what I would want the cover to look like. Unfortunately, I have no artistic talents whatsoever. I, I can't draw at all. So, so you did the but smart I, thing. You, 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 uh, you, you should, you know, put that onto, uh, onto Book Baby. Yeah, I did. I put it on Book A Baby. lot of authors do and, try to uh, do their own covers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to do it well. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> so that's why I, I didn't do it myself. But I, I collect pictures uh, online. I think about what I want the, the cover to look like, and the because you want the cover to kind of tell a little bit of a story when people right. look at it, because yeah. that's one of the first things people see, and to help them make a decision: Am I going to buy this book, or am I not going to buy this book? And so I work with the uh, the folks at Book Baby to try and get the cover to come out the way I want it. And what I want this cover to convey is a sort of an allegory, because in the story, Andrea's not a little girl. She's a she's an adult, but the roles are reversed, and Andrea is now a protector, and her father is the one who has to be protected. So that's what I'm trying to convey in the cover. Yeah, well, you're doing it the right way. Uh, you 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 know you've got your creative <laughs> input on the cover. Uh, you know, you know what you wanted, and then you passed mm -hmm. it on to to someone whose core competency is uh, is making covers, <laughs> kind of like what we did here with our our theme song. You know, I I sort of sent a, you know, four or five sentence synopsis of what I wanted to Jeff Smith, and he, you know, performed music for us. Now, had mm -hmm. I, had I performed the theme song, it would it would have probably been done on a ukulele. It would sound like crap. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and as uh. uh a self-published author, or independent author, I find that if you want your books to be competitive, you have to make your book look like, read like, feel like as much as possible a book that came out of a, a major publishing house. So you really want, as much as you can, you want to get professionals involved in, in the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, Book Baby, um, <coughs> that sounds interesting. That's not a, a service I've, I've heard of uh, yet. Mm -hmm. with all the you know hundreds of authors we've talked to tell us a bit about book baby and your experience with them i've uh i've done two books with them my first book uh the farmhouse which is the first in the harding family stories i went with an independent publisher a small independent publisher and honestly that didn't work out very well so i pulled it back from them and i was looking around for a company to help me you know, republish re-edit and republish the book and i came across book baby and they, they're kind of a, um, a contract house for publishing and a smorgasbord. They'll do whatever you want them to do. They will actually now they have editing capabilities as well, so they can edit for you. They can set up the, both the print and the ebook. They'll put it up on the different sites that sell the books. They have me up on Amazon, on Apple, on Barnes and Noble, and a couple of other places. They'll do the cover art, uh, like you saw. And you know what? Just getting it on the different formats is, is worth the, the price mm -hmm. of, uh, of admission because they're yeah. all different. They're all they different. They are. So, and, so let me ask let me ask a question, Billy. You said your first book uh, for this uh, trilogy, right, is The Farmhouse. And I, and I see yes. farm, for everyone listening, is P-H-A-R-M, not uh, farm, F-A-R-M. And uh, you're in pharmaceuticals yourself. Uh, it looks like from your author bio, is are you writing from what you know, or uh, obviously it, it seems like that's what you're going as opposed to just the pure fantasy. Uh, is this kind of tied into your personal experiences? Yeah, the it's actually both. The farmhouse was my first book. I actually I used to work with a pharmaceutical major pharmaceutical company. I, I no longer work with them. I retired a couple of years ago. And I actually wrote The Farmhouse while I was still working at a full-time, very full-time job working for the pharmaceutical company. And I didn't have time to do a lot of research. I wanted to, knew I wanted to write a thriller. I didn't have a lot of time to do a lot of research on a thriller. So, you know, you know the old saying, write what you know. I knew the pharmaceutical business. So I decided to take a thriller, a suspense thriller, 
and set it in the world of an international pharmaceutical company. So that's why the, the farmhouse was created for my first book. The, uh, the second book, The Torch's Past, is a continuation with the family, the Harding family, but it's not set in the pharmaceutical world. It's set more in uh, just a general everyday kind of setting. Very nice. And uh, you said it's going to be a trilogy. So uh, are you in the middle of writing the third? I am smack in the middle of writing the third trilogy. Um, I have a, a working title. And the working title is The Lost Codicil. And it will be a continuation with the Harding family. They'll still be the major characters. Um, but the I can't give away too much of the story because it picks up sort of where the torch is yeah, passed. We, we don't want to let uh, folks in, at home know who, who survives the torch's past because you never know. Right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, the Harding, some of the Harding family has to survive, otherwise it wouldn't be a trilogy. But right. uh, <laughs> Nicholas, uh, I can't say Nicholas Harding, who's the protagonist, when the, at the start of the the next story, the lost codicil, because of things, events that took place in the torch's past, he, his life is just a mess right now. And his his best friend, Don Marshall, says, "You know what you need. You need to get away, and you need a great adventure, a big adventure, like for two or three weeks." Um, and because Nicholas is into history, and his friend Don is into history. And Teddy Roosevelt, when he used to have adversity in his life, he would go off on a great adventure. He would go off into the Dakota Badlands. He would go off into an African safari or an Amazon river cruise. And so Nicholas Frank convinces him, you need a great adventure. They go off on this great adventure, and they walk right into the middle of a hornet's nest that they didn't have any idea existed. And that's where the lost codicil comes from. Wow. Wow. Bill, uh, tell us, uh, tell the folks at home where they can uh, find your stuff. And uh, are you on, on the tweeters and all that other stuff? I, I am on Twitter and Facebook. Um, you can get my book from Amazon. I, or you can go to my website, which is authorbillpowers.com. Nice. And, and maybe we'll have you back on the show to join one of our panels when, uh, when your cold is, uh, is gone. That would be great. I love that. <laughs> I know what it's like. I know what it's like. Science fiction. Next up is author Benoit Chartier. Benoit, Benoit, you've got a new book, uh, Red Nexus. Uh, I've been reading that. Uh, exciting. Uh, and I loves me a dystopian novel. Yeah, my novel's a... It's yeah, tell a, us a bit about c- it. Cyberpunk thriller, if you will. Yeah, so it's near future. It takes place in uh, Tokyo 300 years from now. Tokyo's uh, had to grow... So it's gone vertical now. It's kind of a city on stilts, if you will. It's got plateaus every hundred levels or so, and then the city is built on these plateaus, and they're sort of interconnected. Basically, it's the story of a young guy growing in the in this vertical monstrosity where all of Japan is moved into. So 180 million people are just kind of crammed inside this thing. But uh, he's down on the 150th level in the darkness. So he has a... Uh, a cushy job in a terrible uh, factory on the hundredth level, but his uh, uh, his main occupation is digging through the garbage heap that accumulates uh, way down at the base of the city. Since underneath all the trash, the old city of Tokyo is still buried. So he goes there on occasion with his crew, and uh, one day he finds something that he should have left in the trash, seeing as a lot of things are still, you know, very much illegal up there, and uh, decides to take a little souvenir home. His younger brother finds it, 
decides to go pawn it for a bit of cash, and then he gets kidnapped for it. And I was going to run after the kidnappers and try to snatch him back before he gets uh, disappeared. Yeah, and, and it's not like a nuclear weapon. No, no. <laughs> no, not at all. But I don't want to spoil too much of the no, beginning but, of the book. But. Certain things are, there's a, there's a certain control over certain things, and uh, that's one of those things that, that's a no-no. So. Right. Yeah. So it's like Waterworld meets Taken. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Meets the high rise. Yeah. I, I, th I think of, you know, the whole city's underneath the water and he brings stuff back up and and then they they kidnap him and they put him in a cage. So that's where I'm going. Throw in some Fifth <laughs> Element and uh, some Blade Runner and then you hit the blender on high and uh, and then you gulp it all down and it's delicious. Yeah, well, one of the things that really hit me in, on the novels is the, the point that just a, a blade of, of of sunshine, you know, sneaks its way through. They're they're so far down in this mm -hmm. massive city that uh, like sunshine is not something that happens. Right. <laughs> That's how big this city of yours yeah. is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I I had a whole lot of fun uh, writing. Actually, I wrote it while I was living uh, in Japan. So, I mean the the city the city of Tokyo itself is just this massive, you know. 30 million people place but it's uh it's incredibly incredibly tall but once you get down to the street level it's tight i mean there's no wasted space they haven't wasted a single inch of space so you'll have this like tiny little flower shop next to a bar which is like three stools in front of a counter and then you know just everything wow. is packed no alleys are left unturned it's yeah, it's a crazy place so you can easily imagine it five, five times as tall. Well, well they have no, yeah. nowhere to go but up, right? Basically, yeah. I mean, Japan is, is mountains and very, very little habitable space. So, I mean, if the waters... I mean, the, the reason why this happened in the, in the story is because the waters rose, and so they had no choice but to build vertically, and then just everybody piled in on this, in this city because there was nowhere else that, that was above water. So. Well, then it's like West Virginia. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Are we going to look at uh, maybe another one in the series? Or... Oh, absolutely. I I have the outline of uh of the one the other one done, but the thing is I was I was only supposed to write this as sort of a serial on my on my website and then it sort of took a life of its own and then I was writing two other novels and I put them down because this thing just took all of the space and I wrote it all out in like 6 months. Now that I'm done that one, I'm going to finish the two other novels that I put aside, and then I'm going to get back into that world, but I'm going to expand on the world, and it's not just going to be Japan. It's going to be you know, a, a, a tiny little bit of Europe, Africa, India, and make it a, a more worldwide phenomenon. Benoit, why don't you tell us where folks can find your stuff as well? Uh, well, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on uh, my website, uh, www.benoitchartier.com. Dot com Benoit Chartier B E N O I T C H A R T I E R Fiction 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 Now let's meet author Daniel C Lordy author of the historical fiction The Avignon Legacy Yes that's right uh, it's a historical fiction or historical mystery whatever you like to call it and uh, and uh, it actually the, it's the book is divided in two parts first half occurs in the uh, 14th century, uh, which was interesting in itself. And, you know, uh, doing a historical fiction, uh, you get to the point where you're studying all the events that happened during that century and 
year by year, as a matter of fact, and, and better if I could get it. And inserting people and that were in there and in a novel. But at any rate, that's what we everybody refers to as the medieval or the Middle Ages. Right. Where uh, knights had uh, on steeds and horseback and and uh, castle sieges and pages became knights and and so um, the good old days. It, it was the good old days, and actually, I picked uh, because I lived over there in uh, Avignon, in southern France, and Provence. Uh, I picked that because uh, I was familiar with the uh, background and history of Avignon. Uh, and uh, for your information, uh, you are well acquainted with the fact that in Rome, there's Vatican City, and the Pope resides in Vatican City. But there was a time in the 14th century where a pope moved the Vatican from Rome to Avignon. Nice. And it was there for about 75 years. And uh, that particular pope who moved it, he was a French pope, and it turned out he had a French mistress. And, of course, uh, the combination of the country and uh, his, his lady uh, decided to move it. But there was other cl interesting calamities during that time that I inserted in the book. And indeed, uh, the Catholic Church ruled the roost, so to speak, collected uh, tribute and uh, compiled immense amounts of treasures. And they lived uh, like uh, cardinals lived like princes and queens and kings. So that led me to, believe, to get a, a plot where this... Uh, the, the popes that were residing in Avignon kept adding to the treasures. And finally, uh, in uh, 1377, one of the popes decided that was enough and it's time to move it back into Rome. And uh, because there's chaos and chaotic uprisings and uh, rebellions going on, and, and of course the French didn't care for that. They wanted the Vatican to stay there. So the treasure that was supposed to be moved back to Rome got uh, hidden and lost. Then the second part is uh, where uh, a book dealer, a, a bookseller, and a book thiever, thief, uh, along with his, his compadre, uh, uh, find, a, find a manuscript that alludes to it uh, and uh, decides to go seek it out more and and then try to solve the riddle, and he's uh, being chased by the millionaire who billionaire who's trying to get that uh, for himself. And he's and uh, since it deals with uh, art and treasures and and uh, that belong to the particular countries, the FBI gets involved, the New Scotland Yard gets involved, the French get involved, Interpol gets involved. So you had all these factors combined. So that's uh, the gist of the Avignon Legacy. I've gotten uh, very nice reviews on it, enough that uh, it's caused me to start a, a, a sequel to it. If you gentlemen ever want to see a, a, a really interesting website on my books and what I do, uh, uh, just check out uh, www.daniel. C is my middle initial, and then Lordy. So it's D-A-N-I-E-L-C-L-O-R-T-I dot com. And uh, 
uh, I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, and uh, it kind of describes my background too. Hello, the book guys. This is Alex from the Alex Cast. I am here to tell you within the bounds of 30 seconds that people should listen to my show as well as yours. Here is one reason. I have written two books. There is a word in your title, book. So we got that going. So go to alexcast.com and give it a listen, or iTunes, or Stitcher, and wherever the hell else you guessed up. The same thing you probably tell your audience. You can find it on alexcast.com. Alex is always spelled with two X's. Thanks. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Hi, this is Mike Luoma, and I write science fiction and comic books, and I have a podcast I do every week. I'm a little bit crazy, but you can check it all out at glowinthedarkradio.com. And you should do that after you listen to the rest of this Book Guys podcast. This is Father Robert Balasare, the digital Jesuit from Twyet, this week in Enterprise Tech. And you're listening to The Book Guys. Book Guys! Comic books, comic books, comic books. All right, next we've got another Canadian on the show. That's a dangerous combination, uh, a host and a guest, uh, Scott Sawyer. Uh, illustrator, comic book artist, and he is looking to do a Canadian comic book renaissance. Uh, uh, started on Kickstarter, right, Scott? Ooh, that sounded juicy. I appreciate that, <laughs> a renaissance. i got to remember that. Pay you a, a nickel every time. Nice. Uh, yeah, that, that's what's going on, um, and it's been a, a fun ride so far. Uh, I think... Uh, writing and illustrating is uh it always gives people cause for concern <laughs> they're like all right what are you up to but uh hopefully uh i've done my job uh with this i've been illustrating all my life and uh writing uh scripts for film and tv uh not a lot of which which saw screen but it did leave me a better uh writer in the long haul so uh it felt like a natural transition to uh go from writing uh that to writing uh, a comics which i have loved all my life so it's kind of a return to my first love. Yeah, Scott. Uh, Paul Thanks. here. I, I'm just going to ask, uh, uh, what gave you the idea to, to to put together this Canadian super team? A few things, actually. Uh, over many years, uh, a lot of them were illustrations done at a much younger age. Before I really uh, took the time to develop storylines for them, there was always just the uh, the the broad strokes of it in my head, and uh, it's just funny. I mean. It, I think probably a lot of uh, character ideas come from just just uh, putting pencil to paper sometimes, and the next thing you know, not only are you forming an image, but you're forming a story as well. So uh, a lot of characters uh, drawn from uh, my early childhood all the way up till uh, 
as recently as probably 10 years ago. And then uh, some new ones came along as well, just out of demand once the story came rolling, uh, came rolling in. Um, and uh, also just, I felt like we were underrepresented as kids. Uh, when it came to Canadian comic book characters, there, I, all I hear even to this day is, well, there's Captain Canuck, there's Wolverine, and there was Alpha <laughs> Flight, and there you go. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and then two of those were nods to Canada uh, uh, from a major American comic company, and uh, and the other one was uh, the only one. And, and, think, then, uh, and then when Wolverine my, hits the big reality. screen, when Wolverine hit the big screen, of course, Marvel totally, you know, pretty much cut off all any Canadian part of them. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I think so. Um, And uh, yeah, it's funny because at the end of the day that, that just shows you just how little we truly uh, do have in terms of representation. So uh, for me, it was kind of writing uh, a a book about characters that maybe, you know, writing a book that we wish we could have read when we were kids and, uh, but uh, tempered with a little maturity, of course, over uh, several decades lived since. And, uh, and a lot of comics consumed and a lot of inspiration. And, you know, what's funny is that um, I have a lot of respect for just how uh, enduring, I guess, uh, the Captain Canuck legacy is because I have a friend right now who's done some great work on the reworking of it, the revamping of it. That's uh, Kalman Andersowski. And he's, uh, you know, it looks great. It's reading better than it ever has. I, I think he's doing a great job. But, um, you know, Captain Canuck has never really had any competition, and I think that good things come from competition. Uh, and over the years, maybe we, uh, you know, the industry could have benefited from a little bit more more people throwing in their hat. But uh, I'm sure there was, and maybe they just met challenges that were hard to overcome in terms of you know taking something from concept to uh, reality or from concept to market. So uh, now we're uh, going to give it a shot again. We'll see what happens. I notice your your Kickstarter. You've reached your original goal of, uh, I believe it was $7,000. You're well beyond that. Are, are you uh, just going to, I believe there's 19 days left and you're, are we adding to the uh, the new goal or? We are actually. Uh, it's funny because uh, it was a great problem to have when we hit our target in eight days. Uh, it was the quick celebration and then the realization that we still had 52 days left and how, how to make the best of that. So uh, we set the goal at the second issue. Uh, but of course there's goals, uh, even before that. I mean, w- if we raise a certain amount, we've colored the book, which is a good portion of what's happening right now. It's all drawn. Uh, three issues are drawn, 14 issues are written. Uh, and now we have, um, the ability to pay our colorists. So the first issue is a lock. The second issue, we've probably raised enough to actually do colors on it right now. Uh, and then the rest of the money raised will probably go towards, uh, something that we've been revising, which is the print itself and getting books into the hands of all the donors and making sure we uh, keep our promises, but also looking at um, getting this comic book online because uh, there's been a shift in the industry. And although print is still alive, it's been uh, challenged by online uh uh, digital comic books, which has also opened a lot of doors for uh, smaller creators. So, and so I'm looking forward to addressing kind of the old and the new and uh, building something that is a little more sustainable because the, the little guy trying to produce uh, enough prints to go out and circulate and actually compete in the world is uh, it's a pretty tall order. So maybe we can build some readership online as well. And that's something that I want to look at. Yeah, we did play uh, your the video from the Kickstarter before we started chatting. 
But uh, do you maybe want to tell us, uh, give us a little bit of uh, background on the on the characters that are part of this uh, superhero team? Sure. Uh, North is the story about uh, back in the day in the 1980s, there was a um, uh, age of heroes that was very small by comparison to the United States. And again, that's kind of tongue in cheek reflective of the comics industry itself. Superhero, uh, the superhero cons, uh, phenomenon was a big thing in the States, but not so much in Canada. Uh, and the, uh, there's two major players back then. Uh, there was a hero called Major Snow, and he's kind of the Canadian Captain America type, and his uh, nemesis, Lord Rain. And these two go at it and uh, end up going out in a blaze of glory that uh, takes the lives of both of them. And that uh, ends up serving as a cautionary tale in the years that follow. Uh, no one really puts on the tights of capes after that, be, be they good or bad. So 30 years later, the story picks up present time when the uh, daughter of the fallen hero, uh, her name is Casey, she's kind of a spoiled Bruce Wayne type character uh, without, <laughs> without the uh, strength of character, uh, ends up finding out that her dad's villain uh, had only staged his death and was living the good life for the last 30 years. So she takes all these people, none of whom should be uh, superheroes, none with any experience, and they go out and try and uh, gather up this old, dormant supervillain who proves to be far more capable than they're prepared for, almost gets them all killed, and accidentally sets off the second age of heroes and villains in Canada. So, you know, it provides uh, a new history, uh, mythology, and... uh, hopefully something to, I don't know, raise the bar a little bit. That's what I'm trying to do ultimately is just, you know, write something a little more reflective of the, uh, the stories that we've loved over the years that we've consumed from, you know, some of the big two or any of the other competing companies. Yeah. It's nice to see some, some variety coming out of, uh, you know, uh, creative people like yourself and, and not just, you know, the, the Disney and Warner brothers factories. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and and uh, but we owe them a lot at the same time. You know, uh, they they've helped create a mythology that I just adore. Uh, sometimes I think to myself, you know, if somebody decides to pick up a comic book for the first time and then they pick up The Watchmen, what must that be like? You know, how do you pick up the quintessential, um, you know, uh, kind of barrier smashing, uh, wonderful work that that is, and not and fully appreciate it without some context with the mythology the superhero mythology for me is like it's been part of my life since i was a child uh but to you know uh, to me what made the watchman so wonderful was the fact that it was it's so in my opinion it depended so much on that or it pulled so much from the existing mythology and just turned it all on its on its ear and uh, took such a dark and uh and kind of relevant socially relevant spin on everything absolutely um, we're, we, we keep talking about it as if this this Kickstarter is all said and done, wrapped up, it's a great success. But by the time this airs, uh, there's still going to be a couple of weeks left in your Kickstarter. So why don't you tell people, uh, folks, where they can go and help out? Oh, well, right now, uh, if you go to kickstarter.com, you can look up under comics. You can look up north, and I think you scroll down. I'm not sure how many projects we are down the line. But there's a lot of them out there, but... Uh, yeah, and uh, you can go on there and, and check us out, watch that same video you were referencing and uh, decide whether or not that's something you want to uh, uh, support and or spread the word about. Because at this point, we've had so much support from people close to us. Family and friends have been just incredible. 
Uh, but of course now the challenge is how do we reach all the other fellow geeks out there that love the same things we do. Uh, and I know they're out there in the millions. I just, it's a, it's a frustrating exercise sometimes trying to fathom how to, how to get to them. I know uh, fan expos, fan expo is going to be in town pretty soon. And I'm excited about the idea of, uh, capitalizing on that in some way, but the timing is tough because we are, we're not going to actually be finishing the campaign until August 20th. And then, there's only a, a very short amount of time we will not have a product uh, right. to bring to, uh, to Fan Expo, but uh, maybe maybe I'll call the uh, the guys and see whether or not they can help help us be a part of it in some way, shape, or form. Excellent, Scott. Uh, where can folks reach you before we uh, let you go on your way to uh, uh, you know continue writing this? <laughs> uh, where can they reach me? They can reach me uh, at well on Facebook. Uh, there's a, a site. Uh, for North, and uh, there's also, if you wanted to, you can reach me at uh, Scott W.W. Sawyer on Facebook as well. Thanks for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Science Fiction. And we are joined, Craig and I are joined, by the one and only Orlando Brew. Uh, You might recognize the name. He is Lando from the Ozone Nightmare. How you doing, Lando? Hi, thanks for uh, having me on the show. Uh, most people will probably know me as Lando because my name, as of now, has been pretty much out of the limelight. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> like the Sir Jimmy of, of uh, Ozo Nightmare. Right. You know, nobody just, calls him James Goots. It's always yeah, you, Sir Jimmy. You, you have to understand the, the creation of the Ozo Nightmare. Joe wanted to do a podcast, and he did two of them, and I listened to them because Joe is like, uh, he is my best friend at this point. At that point, he was one of my, my best friends. But everybody moves apart. And I listened to his shows, and he was like, would well, you want to come on and help me? And I was like, sure. I'll come on and talk shit with my friend Joe. And that's it. That's the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Joe has had, like, he has grand plans, and he does great stuff with the show. And I love it because, like, you know, he was saying to me that that show is, is one of, like, his greatest art projects he's done. His more his most successful art project. That's what he called it, and uh, and it's great. But like, I'm just an add-on, <laughs> and that's always the way I've seen it. I Joe calls show up. Yeah, but that, that's that's what what makes the show great is it's basically two best buds talking about stuff. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So so when we when we heard from Joe that uh, you you wrote a book, we wanted to read it, and we, actually I still want to read it. I haven't picked it up yet. Um, I'm I'm waiting. I'm going to put it on my Kindle at some point. Um, it is called Artificial Fear. Yeah. Soon to have many reviews. Hopefully. On Amazon. <laughs> uh, tell us a bit about the story. I I, I see the artwork. Uh, I'm told that's a Joe the Dish Slave himself uh, artwork. Yes. Uh, tell us a bit yes, about the Joe, story. What's I artificial? I told Joe that if he if he did my covers and I made it big, at some point I would pay him. But he just did it out of the love of me. Ah, oh, nice. Um, <laughs> But uh, this, it's actually funny how it ended up happening. The, I was originally, I, so I went to a, a writing program for popular fiction, which is a really great writing program for anyone looking for a master's in, in writing. Don't, don't do one of those programs that runs parallel to a, an English lit program. You're going to get short sold on it. Uh-huh. Go for a program in writing popular fiction. Um, the one I went to was in Seton Hill. And it was great because it was all writers. It was taught by writers. You can't be a teacher there unless you're published. And half of it was writing skills, and the other half was at the reality of publishing. 
Uh, so it was pretty dismal at times. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, I actually had a, you have to write a novel for your, for your final to get out of the program. And I had written some other work that they just did not want to get behind. And uh, I had this idea for a, <clears throat> a, uh, a drama happening all in kind of one centralized location about a bunch of officers waiting for a big bad to come get them. And I ended up writing it for this program and then sort of revising it a bit after that. And then it just sat for years. <laughs> <laughs> Until one day I was got to the point where I thought, you know what? I'm just going to put it out there and let it go. Because uh, <laughs> I, I write stuff and I just shelve it. Right. Yeah. Which is why so this your is next... a second book. Yeah, it's coming out like in a month, right? <laughs> I was going to say, your next novel will be shit or get off the pot. No, my next book is already done. It's been done for five years. Oh, you're just waiting on uh, Joe for some new artwork? No, no, no. That's the best part. He did the cover for that one first. Oh, nice. <laughs> no, no so my, my wife is an editor. She's actually worked in editing for more than a decade now. Um, so she's my editor, and she's, and she's tough. She's oh, that's a really bonus. So, so you, you've, you've got a free editor at home. I do, yeah. Nice. When she has, no. when she's got the time. I was going to say it's not free. My wife's an editor as well. She's a medical yeah. editor, but it's never free if you need her to look at something. Oh well, <laughs> my wife is freelance now as well, and she does um, <laughs> editing for uh, what is it uh, like uh, IT? Uh, she does IT textbooks now, right? <laughs> but she's done like children's books, and she's done like. Uh, Legal editing. She's kind of done everything, so she's got a nice wide view nice. of uh, of editing, and she's she's pretty brutal on my book. In fact, she saved this book, Artificial Fear, because there's a moment in the book that I missed something, and she read it, and she was like, "Well, why wouldn't they just do this to the bad Ooh. guy?" And I was like, "You're right." I was like, "Why wouldn't they just do that?" I have to answer Ooh, that question. Plug the po the plot hole. Nice. Plot yeah, she's good. She's good for finding the holes, and sometimes it's like. <laughs> It's miserable because she makes me feel like an idiot. <laughs> but it's like, I feel like an idiot because I didn't see it myself. But, you know, when you're so in it, you don't, don't so, catch it. So, so there's almost there's a, uh, like a closed room, uh, I'm not going to say mystery, but like a, it takes place in one, lo well, one location. Tell us a bit about well, the... I originally wrote it as a black comedy. And, okay. Uh, Joe feels it's a thriller, which is very strange to me, um, about a group of officers and they're in a, a terraforming uh, they're on a planet that's pretty out there in the galaxy that's being terraformed. And it's enough to support human life, but there's really not much there. And so you've got these little cities. They're like like uh, prefab cities where it's pretty much just like, you know, police, brothels, soldiers working on um, terraforming, and that's it. And the setup is that there's this one station, um, and th these cities are all isolated from each other because there's not a lot on the planet. So you have these, you have these lone cities. And so it's like the, the frontier, the, the old west kind of. Yes, essentially, yeah. Right. And uh, they, uh, they find out that this android uh, has escaped from prison who desperately wants to kill the only remaining android officer who put him behind bars, which happens to be like their janitor. Okay. <laughs> and he's not he's he's an officer but he's actually he used to be a, like a giant battle mech and now he's like tiny by his own comparison and he's um he's old enough now that over time androids kind of can pick up personalities and as they pick up personalities in this world they kind of shove them to the backwaters because they don't want to deal with them actually being people so you have a, a uh, an android a giant battle android who now feels fear 
and he's got a fear of death, and he has a fear that this guy is coming to kill him. And amidst that, you have lots of android and human drama that all spirals around. There's four point-of-view characters. There's, there really is one main guy, but there's four point-of-view characters, and it all spirals around this situation over the course of a few days while they're waiting for this thing to get there and slowly having every door shut on them that nobody wants to help them because they're hoping this Andrew will just come, kill everybody, and then go on his merry way, and they won't have to deal with it. Nice. But they have to deal with it because they're there. Well, one question I always like, I love to ask authors is, are there any plans for an audio version? Yeah, my wife asked me that. <laughs> well, I figure since, I, since you're a podcaster, you could like, uh, you know, Scott Sigler in there. Not, not only am I a podcaster, my other, my other best friend um, works in audio engineering and has been for more than a decade. And he does okay. movies and, you know, he, he used to do music. Um, so he's like, I have someone who could do recording for me if I wanted to. I just don't, <laughs> I'm waiting to see if the book even sells. You know what I mean? Right. So I'm going to ask the next question then. Yeah. You have two best friends so far. Is there a movie in the works with a third best friend? No, that's no, my wife. My wife is the third best friend. <laughs> and oh. she edited, so okay. Yeah. Well, it yeah. sounds interesting. I'm, I'm definitely going to pick it up. Uh, so you're going to have one more sale. Hey, Orlando, oh, okay. tell the folks where they can find your book, uh, what they should search for, where they can reach you, how they well, can... As of as of now, I am the only Orlando Brew on Amazon writing books, which is nice. kind of funny. Um, I expected, because you know how you always look at your name and you figure there's got to be like 100 of those because there's so many people on the planet. Right, as right. of now, I'm the only <laughs> Orlando Brew on Amazon. So if you type my name in, or Artificial Fear, Amazon has it. Right now, I'm only doing Kindle publishing because I didn't want to have to pay to get it hard pu hard hard published right. although i i missed that i missed the the idea of having your book in hard copy i'm a bit old school in that respect <laughs> and and uh, where can we find your podcast the ozone nightmare uh i we are at uh oh my god joe has a bunch of different addresses we're at ozone.libson.com but i think we're also at ozone nightmare.com and the ozone nightmare.com <laughs> Awesome, because <laughs> he covers all his bases. Um, but yes, or you uh, could just bing uh, ozone nightmare. Yeah, yeah, bing it, bing it, bing it. Bing it? Is bing it still around? I don't think so. <laughs> Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Book Guide Show will return next week, same book time, same book channel.